good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. My name is, is Isaiah Mackler. If you're new and visiting with us, I'm one of the elders of Cornerstone Bible Church. We're so glad that you joined with us this morning. Uh, we are kind of doing a mini series uh, through 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 the book uh, of uh, through the book of Colossians. Uh, I sent around an, an email saying that I originally wanted to focus on some of the uh, encouragement and instruction of chapter three, but the more I, I studied and thought, I got really excited about Paul's prayer in Colossians 1. I knew that we could be challenged by the example of worthy living. And now that we're at Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20, I just can't stop. This is one of the most profound uh, portions of scripture as it exalts our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'll be probably doing a few more sermons, kind of bridging the gap between uh, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20 and working our, our, our way up to, to, to Colossians 3, verse 1. This morning, I'm going to pick up and reading Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, but then our, our ch chunk this morning will be verses 15 to 20. Let me begin in Colossians 1, 13. For he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image, talking about Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I thought that this, uh, um, it would be appropriate as we launch from this profound passage in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is to look back briefly, and we will in just a minute, at Paul's prayer for the Colossians in verses 9 through 14. See, what we saw in Paul's prayer for the Colossians in verses 9 through 14, it, it depicts a beautiful picture of living as a new creature in Christ. It is a broad enough picture to apply to everyone who has put their faith in Christ Jesus, whether man or woman, whether you are married or single, whether you're a mother or father, whether you are a child or those who haven't had children, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you're rich or poor, whatever, whoever you are, it is a beautiful picture of what new life in Christ looks like. Regardless of how God the Father is using you this morning in his world to bring glory to himself, you can read through verses 9 through 14 and say, that's who I want to be. So let's do that one more time here. And again, this is, this is Paul's prayer, but you'll see in verses 10, and I'll read it up to 12, just such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be in Christ. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled. And th this is where the beauty starts, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a worthy Christian life? See, no matter what your role in creation is, no matter what your role in the church is, if you are in Christ Jesus, the life which Paul prays for us, for the Colossians to have here, is the life that you want. I'm confident of that. I trust that we don't always, and it's sad to say, we confess, we don't always want it as we ought to, And we don't want that life as much as we should. And we don't want that life as consistently as we should. But we recognize the beauty of those phrases, of that description, of that life that's walking worthy of Christ Jesus. And we want that life. And so I think that what Paul's doing, without ever telling the the Colossians, this is what I'm about to do, he paints this beautiful picture And really, it's in many ways a simple picture of this beautiful Christian life. And then in verse 15, Paul expands upon how you can live this beautiful Christian life. Now, we've already seen that Paul is confident that this kind of life is an answer to prayer. So Paul's praying for this. It is, he knows that this kind of life is God's work in those who are in Christ Jesus, that this life isn't going to be possible apart from God working. But maybe you're wondering, you know, you see the beauty. How does someone live that worthy walk? How does someone make this beautiful life their life? Well, there was many in the ancient city of Colossae that were presenting their own answers to that question. But many of their own answers were the wrong answers. And let's look at some of these verses here. Colossians 2, verse 4. Paul writes to them, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. There were persuasive arguments going about how to get this, this full, beautiful, great Christian life. Or Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, Paul's warning them. There's danger out there. Colossians 2 verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by, and this is the kinds of things that they were teaching, delighting in self-abasement or kind of like a false humility. The worship of angels taking their stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. See, this is some of the, the false teaching that was creeping in to the Colossae church. The Colossian Christians were being influenced, and we could call them self-avowed spiritual specialists. Self-avowed spiritual specialists, perhaps including true Christians. In fact, there's 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 nothing that we would see that that that, that doesn't leave out the, the possibility. And we see that Paul is not as strong against this. These he, he attacks the false teaching more than false teachers, like he does in in some books. Perhaps they were true Christians who promised that they could help you reach the next level in spiritual maturity, that they could help you arrive at 
Perhaps fullness is one of their uh, slogan words. Now, scholars have a hard time reconstructing the, the, the specifics of this false teaching, or maybe the, the false teachings that were circling in the church. Because of Paul's response, we do see some characteristics of what this false teaching was. There, there, there was a focus on putting rules into place. Here, here, here's rules you should follow to get closer to God or maybe to have a more full Christian life. There was a focus on denying oneself pleasure, on following Jewish holidays of kind of adding into their Christian walk some of the, the, the Jewish traditions. There's a focus on visions. There's a focus on spiritual beings, maybe both demons and angels, perhaps believing that, 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 that these demonic forces were, were actively influencing the Christians' lives. It's difficult to pin down exactly what the origins of this false teaching were. There's some verses that, that make it really seem like, oh, well, this is a Jewish false teaching. And then other verses that make you think, oh, this, this probably is Gentile roots. And the reality is probably somewhere between the uh, two, that this is some sort of, uh, of, of, syn of syncretism, excuse me, of syncretism, a, a, a mixture of some maybe local folk, uh, folk religions specific to that area with a mix of paganism, with a mix of Judaism, and they're kind of blending all of these together. Here's what one author imagines what the false uh, teachings sales pitch could have been. And I don't think it is perfectly right, but it gives an idea of maybe some of what their teaching could have been like and kind of put, put in, into modern day language. So I'm going to quote here. So dear, dear, dear Colossians, this false teaching goes, quote, we know you are experiencing hardships. No doubt you are aware that there are evil spirits and powers that have authority over our mortal world. These powers prey on the weakness of human bodies and flesh. Thus our world is fraught with cosmic chaos. We can offer, though, knowledge and wisdom and teachings that can protect you from these malevolent forces by controlling, combating, and dis disciplining your own frail body, you can resist these powers. Circumcision and strict ritual Torah obedience or obedience to the law are particularly effective in counteracting these hostile spirits. Once you have submitted yourself to such disciplines of the body, you will gain access to the celestial world, receiving divine wisdom and visions, provisions to fight against the weakness of the flesh that the evil that the evil powers use against you. We can offer you the proper route to spiritual fullness and, and perfection, end quote. Now that's just one author's picture of maybe what was going on, but I think it gives some kind of idea of the kind of false teaching, a mix of, 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 of denying yourself, trying to beat down your body, bringing on rules, trying to get into the world of angels, all of that in the pursuit of some kind of spiritual fullness. Well, one commentator writes, the false teachers were appealing to spiritual beings, visions, and rules to find security in this very uncertain universe. 
and end quote. While these teachers may not have been going on the offensive against Christ, we don't get a sense that they were teaching, saying, saying that the, the, the Orthodox teaching about Christ was wrong. Through their practices, they questioned the sufficiency of Christ. Through their practices, they questioned the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is not enough. And that is not that different from, from today, is it? See, many promise us and often sell us the tools to make our lives go the way we want, to, to try to overcome the chaos of the universe, the chaos of our lives, to make us wealthier or healthier, more disciplined, more organized, thinner, smarter, happier, to have more certainty in our lives and less chaos, have more control or maybe to use the, 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 the buzzword going around in Colossae, more spiritual fullness. In a sermon, the preacher Sinclair Ferguson imagined a Christian bookstore that, 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 that promised fullness, the, the, the full life Christian bookstore, I think he called it, or, or, or something like that, with everything from, 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 from a section of cookbooks about eating healthy to, 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 to angelic charms. Well, what would today's version be since there aren't many Christian bookstores? Well, it would be probably a well-designed, slick app. And it's probably a, a subscription-based model. And on this app, there's a section for, for meal plans and fitness plans, a parenting blog, a finance blog, plenty of marriage advice. It'd be probably advocating a minimalist lifestyle, an environmentally friendly lifestyle, and it'd be filled with stock photos of happy people that you look at and you say, oh, isn't their life wonderful? And here's the problem. None of those things are wrong in themselves. Apps can be great and parenting blogs can be great and fitness plans can be great. But we don't need any of them to live worthy of Jesus Christ. We don't need any of them to live worthy of Jesus Christ in a way that is pleasing to the Father. In the way that Paul has been praying in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. See, all of those things could be evaporated from this world. And you can please God the Father just as much. And you can walk just as worthy of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who is supreme. And Jesus is the one who is sufficient for our sanctification and sufficient to bring us to salvation. This morning, we're going to examine two stages of Christ's supremacy Two stages of Christ's supremacy so that you, dear saints, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, will find your fullness in Christ. So that when you seek to please Christ, you'll look first to Christ. So that when you want to walk worthy, you'll fix your eyes on the one who is worthy. So we're going to examine two stages of Christ's supremacy so that we will find our fullness in Christ. Now, before we get started, I just want to briefly say about Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Paul is writing here a, uh, 
a, a hymn of praise. And, and, and really, as we think about this Greek hymn, it is probably more in common with what we think of as a English poem. And you may not notice in your English Bibles, but verses 15 and 20 is, is, is kind of a poem or a hymn. And the, the Greek has a lyrical style to it. There's a kind of rhythm to it. And, 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 and it has it has a linguistic style. It, it uses a, a, a lot of a lot of un, 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 unusual words, less common words, and and theological expressions. And and it, Paul does it intentionally to set it apart as a memorable text. It's kind of like Paul is giving them a, a a chewy, delicious. Now those things really don't go together with protein bars. They're normally just chewy and not really very delicious. But a chewy, delicious theological protein bar. He wants to, to give them this, 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 this tasty meal that they can put in their pocket and take with them and, and, and spend the rest of their lives meditating on. And that's by God's grace what I want us to do with Colossians 1, 15 and 20. I want us to take this hymn and, and for it to slowly over time as we understand it this morning, completely transform our understanding of the sufficiency and the supremacy and the grandeur and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. So I want this, this, this hymn to be printed out and to be put into our wallets and to be pasted onto our walls and into the dashboards of our car and, and to be put into our, our lunch bags like that protein bar so that we keep chewing on it. So let's look at this first stage of, of Christ's supremacy. The first stage is that Christ is supreme over the first creation. Christ is supreme over the first creation. And that's the first stage of Christ's supremacy. Christ is supreme over the first creation. We see that in verses 15 to 17. And my goal this morning is first, and it's going to be mostly, excuse me, for you to understand this. I want you to be able to, to, to take this later today and the rest of this week and the months ahead and keep meditating on it and chewing on it, understanding it better. So that as we continue in the upcoming weeks to find our sufficiency in Christ, that you, that, 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 that this will be your tasty meal you keep coming back to. So let's get started in the beginning of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. It says Christ is the image of the invisible God. And the word in Greek uh, is, is, is icon a word that we still use, use in English. It's something that represents something else. It would be like Caesar's icon on a coin or his image on a coin. Or it's the way that an idol represented a god. But in, in addition to a representation of someone or something, the word image, the word icon, also has the idea of manifesting the essence of something. An idol wasn't just to, to say, oh, well, this reminds me of that guy. He somehow manifested his presence. So I, I, I was thinking of an example. If you draw a, a heart symbol, right? Or I guess people do this, right? If you have a heart symbol, it represents love, but it doesn't really manifest love. It, it just represents love. Instead, you might want to think of, of an impressionistic painter. Think of a painting by, by, by Van Gogh. 
He just didn't want to capture what a room looked like. He also wanted to to kind of recreate the experience of that room in your mind, kind of what it felt like. Not just a representation, but a manifestation. Now, of course, our, our language is limited here, and I think that you'll find that a lot with this section of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Before and after Christ, God the Son, became man, Jesus Christ, from eternity past to eternity future, Christ has been and forever will be the image of God. Christ not only represents the Father, but manifests the Father as he truly is. See, God the Son is identical in nature, but distinct in person from God the Father. God the Son, Christ, makes the invisible God known. He is the image of the invisible God. He he represents God, but he manifests God. He makes God known. In John 1, verse 18, the apostle John says, no one has seen God at any time. The only God, referring to Christ, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, he has made him known. When God the Son became man, he makes the Father known. Hebrews 1.3 he uses this language. He is the radiance of his glory. Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. See, Jesus was not created in the image of God like Adam and Eve were in Genesis 1.27. In Genesis 1.27, they were made in the image of God. And it is fascinating to think about that when Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and, and we can speculate, hypothesize, I think so, they were made in the image of God, God the Son. Just, just fascinating and mind-blowing, but we got to stop there. Okay, so he is... The image, God, Christ is the image of the invisible God, going to the second half, second part of verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, some would use this to say, look, Jesus is just the first of all that God makes. But here, Jesus is being distinguished from all creation. He's not, he's not part of creation. He is the firstborn of all creation of all creation. Firstborn just doesn't mean the first that is born, although it can mean that. And and, 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 and we see it used that way in, in Luke 2, 7. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. It just means that that's the first son that she bore. She would have other sons. But in most of the New Testament usage of firstborn, there is a sense, not just the first order, but also a primacy of rank, a status that comes with being firstborn. Now listen to, to, to this messianic prophecy in Psalm 89, verse 27. This, this is fascinating. I also shall make him, the future Messiah, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God makes the, the Messiah his firstborn. This is a title he gives him. He gives him the rank of firstborn. Being God's firstborn is a privileged relationship of rank. See, Christ's firstborn is true. He is prior to creation, but he's also supreme over all creation. He is the firstborn over creation. When, when, when in the Greek, we, we, we say that, that, that someone is the king of Israel. The idea isn't that he's just king among one, among many in Israel. He's king over Israel and his, Christ is the firstborn, the king over creation. He is the ruler over all things. 
Now, Paul continues this theologically dense meal in the beginning of verse 16. For by him, all things were created. At the end of verse 15, we saw that, 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 that he's the firstborn over all creation. And now he, he even more makes it clear that Christ is not part of creation. The all things he's over is the all things he created. Beginning of verse 16. For by him, all things were created. Now that four answers, why is Christ the firstborn? Why is he in this position of rank? Well, because for all things were created by him. The passive here, uh, were created, he just it doesn't say he created all things. Were created shows that the Father is the creator, but everything is created by the Son. Again, this is mind-blowing, and our versions, both ESV and New American Standard, have a note where it says, for by him, it says it's also in him, and I think in him is better. In fact, we're going to see that idea of by him later at, uh, in, uh, as, as we continue where it says through him. Uh, but here it's in him. And I know that, that that stretches. What does it mean that in him all things were created? Boy, that's, that's kind of tough. And, and, and I don't think Paul means it to be vague, but it is complex. See, the act of creation was completely dependent upon Christ. He was the sphere in which creation took place. There was no creation outside of Christ. All creation was in Christ. All creation took place in reference to Christ. Nothing was made that has been made apart from Christ. And one commentator tries a word picture. It is not perfect, but I think it helps. The father, quote, is, is presented as the architect. He determined to bring creation into existence. But here's the son's role. The son, Jesus, actually brought the plans into existence. Through his creative imagination and power, the created order exists. He is, in a sense, the foreman of the construction. The spirit finally does the actual work of applying the plans in a hands-on relationship to creation. And so there's a, just a word picture trying to understand a little of, of, of how what the Father plans is accomplished in the Son through the work of the Spirit. Incredibly dense, but so uh, powerful that this is Jesus Christ. We're going to go a little bit further here in verse 16 next. Describes the all things were were created for by him all things were created first uh, in the middle of 16 both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible and further describes real simply what these all things are it, uh, the supernatural invisible world of heavens and angels were created in christ by christ and we're gonna see for christ and the natural visible wor world of earth everything in it from the smallest molecule to the Billions of galaxies were all created in Christ, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And you cannot imagine an, an exception. Paul continues, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And here, these are four classes uh, of, of angelic beings. And, and we see as we look at the book of Colossians, we've already talked about it some. Angelic beings were an important part of ancient worldviews and much less in 21st 
century um, uh, um, Americanal, at, le at least to many people. It, it varies as, as you go around the world. But it's a very important part of that first century worldview. And, and so here, Paul is probably drawing attention to the Colossians' false teaching and emphasis on, on angels and demons. Paul uses those terms, principalities and rulers and powers, elsewhere in Scripture to, to refer to classes of demons or, 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 or angels. All of that, any angelic power was created in Christ it was created in Christ. It was the Father's act of creation in the Son, ultimately through the Son. Now, Paul continues at the end of 16. He summarizes all things. And again, we see that all, right? And there's, there's a lot of focus on all and everything. All things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. And that have been created shows that 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 that. The ongoing existence of everything is dependent upon Christ even now and always has been through him. It is through Christ's power and through his ability. He is the, Christ is the intermediate agent through whom God accomplishes his, his creative acts as one, one commentator describes it. First Corinthians 8, 6 says, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by, or there's our, through, our word through, through whom are all things. All things are through Christ. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, the same word through or by, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything created is through Christ and is for him. That's incredible. All things have been created through him and for him. For him, it is for his glory it's to put Christ on, on display. In Christ's artwork, we see the artist Christ. Christ is the goal of the universe. It is his exhibit decreed by the Father so that the Christ, so that the Son is glorified in a way that puts all attention on the Father. These verses are just massive. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And now into verse 17, where in, in, in 17, in the beginning of, uh, of 18, is a transitional section here. And we start kind of transitioning between the two stages. But before we go to the second stage, Paul summarizes what he said so far in the first stage. We see that in the beginning of verse 17. Beginning in verse 17, he is before all things. And this summarizes what Paul's already been saying. It establishes Christ's supremacy because he is before everything. The only thing he is not before is the Father and Spirit who have eternally existed. It could also mean he, he being before all things. It could also mean that he's above all things. He is, and we're going to get to this, he is preeminent. He's in first place. And at the very center of this hymn is the next phrase, and in him all things hold together. And this is kind of a transitional phrase. Everything of the first creation is held together by him. What you see and what you touch, but what you can't see and can't touch, the, the, the invisible heaven and, and angels and demons, everything is held together 
in Christ. It's that same in him we saw in verse 15. In him, all things hold together. I don't understand this. I mean, I can explain it, but, but, but to wrap our minds around it, I, I can believe it. What an exalted Savior we have in him. Christ is the sustainer of the universe. Our continuing existence is dependent upon Christ's activity. The author of Hebrews says the same thing, Hebrews 1.3. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Matter and energy would cease to exist without Christ holding them together. The physical world, the spiritual world, earth and heaven would cease to exist without Christ holding all together. What an incredible Christ. See, and this is wrapping up this, this first stage of Christ's supremacy. Christ is supreme over the first creation. And now we transition into the second stage. Christ is supreme over the new creation. He is supreme over the first creation. We still see that existing. But he's also supreme over the next stage, not just in human history, but in creation, in the new creation. And that new creation begins with Christ's resurrection from the dead. So let's go to the second stage and, and it begins in verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. And I like the, the ESV a little bit, 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 bit better. It's not just, he's also the head of the body, the church, like almost like, like, like that's a sub point. The, e, the ESV is a little bit more uh, uh, tight with the Greek and he is the head of the body via church. This is not a, a, a tack on to him holding all things together. And he's also the head of the body of the church. This is the next big stage. And he is the head of the body, the church. And what a profound place for Paul to go next. From, from, from being the, the sovereign over all creation who holds all things together to how he holds his people together. The church is the center of God's new creation, of the new humanity. The second time God begins with the new people in the first creation, the capstone of creation is man and woman. Here, God begins this new creation with redeemed man and redeemed woman. As head of the body, the church, Christ has control. He is the head. He's over the body. He's not just a part of the body. See, the body depends upon the head. The, 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 the head provides life and sustenance to the body. Colossians 2.19 uh, plays out what the picture that Paul has in mind. The head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth, which is from God. Describes the, the entire body being supplied and held together. That is what the head does. See, believers are organically tied to Christ, not just a, 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 a organizational relationship to Christ. Christ is not just the CEO of the church. He is the head over the church, but he's also the life of the church. Christ is in a relationship to the church that is different from the rest of creation. In him, all things hold together, but the church is uniquely supplied by Christ. He is only the head of the body the universal church, all of those who have come to saving faith in Christ alone. See, Christ is not just the Savior. He is our sovereign and our sustainer, minute by minute, day by day. 
Our life is in his life. Our will is to be his will. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a, a new creature in Christ, you are, are linked to him so that you draw your ability to please him and to obey God from him. He is your life. And Peter can, I mean, Paul continues in the second half of verse 18. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And he is the beginning has to do with Christ's primacy, his first place. Now, that could be his first place in time or his first place in authority. And it's very tough to, to distinguish that word beginning just got tra translated referring to a class of uh, angels in verse 16 as rulers. So it could be, and he is the ruler, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning. He is the ruler. He is the chief, the head honcho, the numero uno. He is the beginning, the ruler. There is no next stage in human history. He is the beginning, the cornerstone of all that follows. And it describes him, Paul continues, as the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead, the firstborn out of the dead. The grave had no ability to hold Christ. He was there for just barely three days. The resurrected Christ is this ruler of new humanity. The new humanity will be resurrected after him. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ's resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, he's just the start. Death has been conquered. Coronavirus has been conquered. Diseases have been conquered. Anything that would keep a believer from God has been conquered in Christ. He is the firstborn out of the dead. And why? There's a purpose. Why, there's a purpose why he came first, why he didn't stay in the grave for thousands of years until all the believers were saved. It says at the end of 18, so that, here's the purpose, he himself will come to have first place in everything, in everything in the new creation. Christ's resurrection before his people has a purpose. He will have the clear first place, that he will be preeminent. See, Christ's resurrection proves his approval by the Father. Listen to what Romans 1, 4 says. Who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Christ being rose from the dead, exposes to all, proclaims to all that he is the Son of God. Christ resurrection and his exaltation are essential to his being first place. Listen to Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And we've taught before, and I think that that is the name of Yahweh, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Christ's resurrection is the beginning, his exaltation of his being seen as supreme as his first place in the new creation over everything. So he was first in the first creation, beginning before of all that, the firstborn before all, the one in whom all things are created. 
visible and invisible. And now he is the first place in the new creation. It's all about Christ's supremacy. Now, Paul continues, and he's going to have two parallel four statements, two reasons why, two reasons why Christ had to have first place. And the first in the beginning of 19, for here's the reason why he needed to have first place, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Or the ESV has it, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to, to dwell in. And in this sentence, for you grammar geeks out there, the, the subject is the, is the fullness. In Christ, the fullness was pleased to dwell. And what is that fullness? Well, Colossians 2 makes clear what this fullness is. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The, the, the fullness is a way to speak of God. All the fullness is God's attributes. It's everything that makes God who he is. Christ has to have first place because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this man, in God become man. See, the supremacy of Christ is a theological necessity. The fullness of God permanently dwells in the flesh of Christ. He has to have first place. And the idea here of was pleased shows that this is God's choice. This is his eternal plan. Now, Paul may be referencing some, some Old Testament language here. There's a verse where both good pleasure and dwell are, 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 are used together. And in our English Bibles, it's in Psalm 68, verse 16. The mount that God desired for his abode, talking about Mount Zion where the temple was, the mount that God desired for his abode or his dwelling, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. God was pleased to dwell on Mount Zion, to, to dwell in a temple. But that's where the comparison stops. See, everything that God is, the fullness of God, all his attributes are permanently at home in the flesh of Jesus Christ, God become man. And that is by God's eternal plan. Christ is where we find the full presence of God. There's nowhere else to go. He is supreme. And that's why he has to have first place. He has to have first place because all the fullness of God dwells in him. And But there's another reason why he has to have first place. And because it was God's plan through him, it was God's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. This is the second reason for Christ having first place. See, Christ's death had a universal purpose. It says through him to reconcile all things to himself, to Christ. All things. So this is the whole created order. This is heaven and earth. This is visible and invisible. And if we jump down to the end of verse 20, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, everything in the universe, physical and spiritual, is reconciled to Christ through Christ. And this includes, includes, in, includes everything. So, now, Paul probably includes at the end of verse 20, uh, this, the, the, this, this reference of things on earth or things in heaven because of the presence of uh, angels in this false teaching. So there's a, a greater focus here on the spiritual presence being, being reconciled to God. But creation was in chaos. 
Creation needed to be reconciled to God. And man, in, in ways, we still see continuing in chaos. We see man at war with one another. We see nations at war with one another. We see races at war with one another. Tribes at war with one another. Generations at war with one another. Spouses at war with one another. Siblings, brothers and sisters at war with one another. Creation is in chaos. And it's not just men. It, it, it is also the physical creation. Bible talks about it, 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 it being, being, being subjugated to futility or waste, that there is decay and death and entropy, and that all is, is winding down and falling apart. Creation is in chaos. People are in chaos. But also spiritual forces are in conflict. And, 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 and we see glimpses of this scripture enough to know that it's true, that there's... An, Battles between angels and demons going on. Ephesians 6 verse 12, it, it talks about our struggles against principalities and powers instead of wrestling against flesh and blood. Just a little insight into a world that is, that, that, that is much bigger. See, creation is cursed by the fall. The plague of sin has infected the stars. So all of that, everything needs to be reconciled to God. So in what sense then can Paul say, that, that is through Christ, all things have been reconciled to himself. It doesn't mean the universal salvation of all people. And it doesn't mean the, the repentance or the salvation of demons. Nowhere in the, in the Bible does it talk about any, any fallen demons, any fallen angels be, being, being reconciled to God. It means that order has been restored in a cosmos ruined by chaos. Satan and sin and death and demons, that, that, that whole kind of power of evil, all that consequence of sin, everything opposed to God has been checkmated. Now, we still see them in a sense, futilely moving pawns on the chessboard, but all that is in God's sovereignty. You know, sin, all that is lost. Everything has been reconciled to God in Christ. Now, most often we think of reconciliation as voluntary, as, as, as not forced. And for those who come to God through faith in Christ, reconciliation is, in a sense, voluntary. That, that, that God's Spirit works in the heart of those that he's going to save, in, in the hearts of rebels, so that when they hear the gospel, they respond in faith. They respond in humility, in brokenness, and they desire to be reconciled with God, that they look at the price that Christ has paid for sin. And they say, I need that salvation. I need that savior. I need that supreme one. I need to be reconciled to God. And then they believe. And that's God's work through his spirit in the hearts of rebels. And I plead with you, if you've not yet been reconciled to God, you can have peace with God. If you expect, we look at Romans 5.10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone. But there is a sense in scripture in, 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 which, in, in, in which inanimate creation is also reconciled to God. Listen to Romans 8.20 and 21. For the, for the creation, the physical world was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
that as when Christ returns and, and when God makes all things new, creation will be released from its freedom to the uh, corrupting effects of sin. But there's a way too that even the, uh, the unrepent sinner and even, and even demons are in a sense reconciled to God. And, and, and the idea here isn't that they become in a right relationship with him, but that everything is made right in the universe. And this is a, a forced submission to him, uh, uh, that they have no power to resist being reconciled in a sense, like not, like not made right, but being put in their place. For them, reconciliation has the idea of being pacified. It's, it, it's, it's reconciliation that is forcefully imposed upon them. As we saw in, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where every knee bows, many will bow unwillingly. They will be forced to confess who Jesus is, that, 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 that this God become man, resurrected and exalted, is Yahweh. It's kind of lot like a, a police officer or several of them going into a bar fight and saying, this fight has to end. There has to be peace here. And we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. Well, by God's grace, reconciled sinners, uh, in a sense, do it the, the easy way through faith in Christ. Then there are those who are subjugated to Christ. And that is what happens to all who won't repent. To, is what happens to the demonic horde. They, they're put in their place. See, God is bringing the entire cosmos into newness. Everything will be in its right place. The only rebellion that will continue will be of, of spirits being punished in hell, but there God's justice will be eternally satisfied. All will be per perpetually right in the universe. And this is this new creation that Christ is, is supreme over. He talks about how this new creation happens in the middle of verse 20. Paul says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And this has the, 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 the Old Testament idea of peace. It's not just the absence of war, but the blessing and the fruitfulness and the productivity that accompanies peace. See, universal peace wasn't accomplished by some angelic war in heaven, but through Christ's humiliation on the cross. He having made peace through the blood of his cross. When God's wrath was satisfied, when he, then his plan of redemption could proceed. The sin of the first Adam led to the corruption of all creation, but the resurrection of the new Adam leads to restoration, to new creation, better than Eden, Eden as Christ is infinitely better than Adam. What we have is so infinitely better than anything we can experience now. That supremacy is in Christ. See, sinners have peace with, 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 with one another. It talks about that in Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, that we're reconciled in one body to God through the cross. But sinners also have peace with God, having been justified by faith with peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is peace that has forever been established, eternal reconciliation, paradise made better than paradise was. As God's grace will be eternally praised that we forever are going to go into this new eternal paradise, praising God for what we would have never known and have never experienced, that God is gracious gracious and merciful and patient, that God is a, a reconciling, reconciling God. 
Our, our eternal destiny is so glorious because of this supreme Jesus Christ. Now, as we wrap up this very dense Colossians 1, 15, 2 to, 2 to 20, and Paul wants it to be dense. This is a spiritual protein bar. Nibble on this thing for the rest of your life. But I got two questions to end with. The first is, what do you strive for? And how will you get there? What do you strive for? And how will you get there? See, we didn't necessarily recognize Paul doing this. But Paul's already been responding to the false teachers. And he's not giving them, them some kind of, 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 he's not presenting some kind of spiritual success, spiritual success, excuse me. Paul portrayed for them a worthy walk. He's presented for them this worthy walk. It's the life that he's been praying that the Colossians would walk. It's what we've been praying for one another during these, 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 these coronavirus days. Paul didn't present for them a perfect life. He didn't present for them a life free from hardship. He didn't present for them a charmed life. It's, 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 not, it's not that they would have a life worthy of, of Instagram or a body worthy of Instagram or a home decoration worthy of Instagram. You may not receive any likes for this kind of life, but it is a beautiful life. It is a life worth striving for. And what we've seen in Colossians 1, 9 through 14, particularly that worthy, pleasing life in verses 9 through 11, is that the life that you are striving for? Is that the life that you would be satisfied by? Because that life and so that's the first question is, what do you strive for? How will you get there? Paul goes to Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and he exalts Christ because here is how we arrive at that beautiful life. The worthy walk is only found in a worthy Christ. The sovereign, supreme Savior, Jesus Christ, is sufficient. A God-pleasing life can be yours in Christ. It can be yours through Christ. It can be yours for Christ because God in Christ has reconciled all things to Christ. This worthy walk, this beautiful walk. So is that what you're striving for? Because you can have that in Jesus Christ, not perfectly, but increasingly and truly. Christ is sufficient. You don't need a sales page. You need Christ. Let me pray. Now, Father, I trust that Christ has been exalted in your word in these verses. I pray, Father, that your people would understand your word more. I pray, Father, that we would keep mulling over these verses that Christ would become more of who he is here and who he is when we open the Gospels and see him because it's the same Christ. Father, I ask that you blow our minds. I ask, Father, that we would understand a sufficiency in Christ that we have not yet. In Jesus' name, amen.